Does Made in USA mean something to you? I'm guessing it does, because you probably looked at the title of this episode before clicking on it and uh, hearing this ad right now. If so, I would recommend you head over to the Heddle Shop, where we have a full selection of many, many different brands and departments of Made in USA goods. Whether you want a pair of jeans from Tellison or Left Field, proudly made in San Francisco, or you want a pair of leather flip-flop sandals from Waltzing Matilda, made in Maine, uh, a accessory uh, or bandana or even a mask from Kiriko, made in Portland, uh, or even our very own uh, Teamster tees that were made by union uh, workforces, uh, the Teamsters themselves, uh, and also made in USA. So uh, you can head on over to shop.heddles.com and take 10% off uh, your order with the code BLOWOUT, B-L-O-W-O-U-T. Okay, Heddlers, welcome back to Blowout. As we keep experimenting to find a format that we like to stick with, we're going to do a bit more explanation this time around and getting into some of the more uh, quote-unquote evergreen content that is like mostly, I'd say, what the site is known for, of like trying to explain large like topics so we can get that sweet SEO. And uh, specifically in the like heritage niche raw denim fashion space. And what's one that uh, could not be closer to our hearts or closer to a lot of the hearts of people that sort of um, nationalistically tumble into our sphere than... Made in USA goods, which uh, sort of harkens back, I would say, to a time when things were all made in the States. And uh, I don't know about you, Reed, but I'd say it's a rarity these days to see any mass-produced piece of clothing, electronics, or like really any consumer good made in USA. It's sort of like a diamond in the rough type thing, but even if it isn't really a diamond. It's like a farm uh, table situation at this point. Yeah, you, you got to seek it out. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of the culture in the like heddles and heddles adjacent world is steeped in people who sort of resent that uh, things aren't made in USA anymore and want to return to those like nostalgic times, however real or not they were. So in this episode, I've done a little bit of digging, not a historian by any means, not an economist, but... Uh, sort of wanted to come up with a story for what those times were, like the sort of uh, mythical golden age and like what it was like, uh, how did we get there and sort of how did we lose our way and like what did we really lose our way and like what is the state of things right now? Um, so in this episode, hoping to explore the rise and fall of Made in USA and uh, seeing what eroded that golden age of American manufacturing uh, into the sort of globalized consumer landscape we currently have and wondering if it will ever return. Uh, Let's hit it. Are you ready to, you ready to hear the story? You ready to hear some numbers? Yeah, I, I want to hear the stories. Okay. So the, I wanted to start with just like the current state of American manufacturing and sort of like how much do we make here right now? And one of the things that was like, Sticking out to me, uh, especially, was when we had like a mask shortage at the beginning of the pandemic for like a couple months. It's sort of hard to gauge time right now, 
but just like we couldn't we could we could put a man on the moon in the 60s but we couldn't put a piece of cloth on people's faces um to stop a deadly virus uh so just seeing like where are we right now and got some numbers about how manufacturing is about 12% of the US economy um as of 2010 so that's like 12% of the GDP so like of all the things that are made in the American economy um 12% of them are for manufacturing um and that employs about 8% of the country's workforce is about 12 million people in a country of like 320 million people it's only the people that work not uh not all the people in the country that are kids or retirees um and that is the uh fourth biggest employer in the country behind guess which of them read which we got them we got uh, finance, real estate, rentals, and leasing, which is the biggest one. It's all one category, which is like, cheating. I feel it, like it kind cheating. of is, is like finance doesn't really make anything and real estate, rentals, and leasing, they're, they're, they're already there. Like what, what, what are you building there? Like, I feel uh, like, like retail and restaurant and any other service related category should just team up and just be like, yo, we are the category, but, mm-hmm. but I respect whoever collected this data. You know, they're actually number three. Like the number two is the government um, for all like your teachers, like military, firefighters, um, as yet to be defunded police um, and all that. And then for, uh, third, third, because fourth is manufacturing. Third is like what the Fed just like calls professional and business services, which is everything from like uh, restaurants, uh, like retail um consulting uh like software like all that shit i feel like those are very different professions they are and uh probably why we have a difficult time to really grapple with what the economy is at the moment um because it's these categories are really broad it's like honda car sales by judging all of japanese auto sales fair fair um, which would also be input in probably professional and business services. Uh, even though like manufacturing cars, like that's the question that I couldn't really answer when figuring this out was like, is like manufacturing a car is in manufacturing, but selling the cars in professional and business services. So you have to like really line item out all of these different categories. Um, so they're not just like cars as an industry. There's like no. there's five industries within cars. Pretty much. Okay. Um, this is okay. That, that is how I understand it. Again, my disclaimer of like, I do not know what the fuck I'm talking about. But you did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Um, that I did. <laughs> um, so the manufacturing sort of includes like not just clothes. It's everything from like airplane parts, cars, farm equipment, medical devices, computers, like uh, all of that um, stuff, like and including all this stuff that like we care about that's made in USA. Good. Um, exactly. And of the people that are still like employed in garment manufacturing, it's about 150,000 um, that are still making garments in the United States, like right now, which is down from about a million in 1990. Um, so it's been cut by like 85%, which we'll get into more. Um, in a bit, but uh, it's still three times the size of coal. 
Yeah, there's like less than a hundred thousand coal miners, right? Fifty thousand as of twenty nineteen. Yeah, but they make a lot of noise, so we got to respect so them. They're so loud. But yeah, I'm not gonna hate on coal. That's there's nothing to. It's it's like my profession, writing. It's dying. Um, yeah. uh, um, when we get into like how much clothing is consumed in the U.S. versus how much is made here. It's about like 2% of the 20 billion clothing items consumed annually in the United States are made in the U.S., which is still, it's a very big number that's like made in the U.S. It's still like 400 million garments that are still made in the U.S. Uh, but out of the total 20 billion, which is just like sort of an eye-popping number, um, when I first saw that, uh, doing the math, that's like, 70 items per year per person, which is, you know, more than one per week. It's like buying something, buying an, an article of clothing every five days, which, you know, is not really my style. You might be different than me as we, as we've talked in the past. <laughs> Just trying to fill the empty hole. Uh, it's, uh, the household spend is about $1,800 annually in clothing, which is like about 3% of the household budget, which is, pretty tiny um is like people spend more on their cell phones than they do on clothing and on like cable internet all those things have become bigger like spending uh categories than clothing and footwear so when you do that math it's about like 25 dollars an item for all these things which you know uh you can't really make something in the united states for 25 dollars like a clothing item you could like maybe get a bandana Maybe, maybe like a uh, watch strap. Um, it's not a big. Uh, it you, things have to be really cheap and made under like very suspicious circumstances to get them at twenty five bucks an item. Um, it sounds appealing. So, so like eighteen hundred dollars, it's probably pretty low balling compared to uh, a regular reader of this site. Um, myself excluded, because as we talked about, I don't buy anything. Uh, over under for you? Uh, I definitely I make up for both of us in that average. Um, I probably more than both of us. I have no idea. I it's like one of those things where it's just like don't ask don't ask questions you don't want to know the answers to. Uh, <laughs> but but internally, situations with me. But no, I mean I uh, as readers of the site, if if you've read me, you. You probably know that uh, I like to buy things, um, trigger whatever little little serotonin, dopamine. I am not a psychologist, so I don't know which one goes, but I know one of them goes. Mm-hmm. And uh, with me, it goes hard. So yeah, I uh, I make up for both of us and, and probably for some other listeners who are like, I don't hit that either. Don't you worry. I got you. Um, you got to keep those averages up. It's, it's something, you know, it's like I, uh, I don't do many things well, but I can keep that average up well. So, so that's what I'm leaning on right now. Right, right. Now, speaking of that average, it's uh, in terms of imports and exports on manufacturing. It's like we import now about double uh, what we export. It's like uh, about a trillion dollars worth of goods, manufactured goods that are exported, and about two trillion that are imported. But still, our share of the global manufacturing, like uh, in the entire world is about 18.5%, and we're second only to China, and they only passed us in, like, 2010. 
So like it's a thing that like I found that number pretty shocking when I first saw it. Um, that even though it seems like all the factories are closed and um, everything is being shipped overseas, like we still account for almost 20% of all the manufacturing in the world. Um, and they're still number two in the world. Uh, but it's, it's shrinking um, that there's a, as I mentioned, there's like 12 million people employed and the Fed expects to shed like 700,000 manufacturing jobs in the next 10 years. Um, so that's sort of like the view of what is the uh, American manufacturing like right now that like, and, and in clothing, like we don't spend a lot, we, but we buy a lot, like very little of it is made here and it is expected to drop down, but we're still making a shitload of things like, uh, like F-35s and tractor parts and air conditioners that sort of go to that whole big manufacturing, uh, bucket that we can figure out but uh what was it like in the before time in the long long ago like when like was the supposed golden age of the uh made in usa and what did it look like as a consumer and like as someone that worked in some of these factories um so the the golden age is like i was able to figure out is most economists and historians like think of it between the late 1940s and 1970s. So like, uh, if you want to put a hard date on it, it was probably in 1948, um, which coincided with the Marshall plan of rebuilding Europe after world war II, when like uh, a lot of money was laid aside to that, but we'll get into that in a little bit and ending with the like OPEC oil embargo in uh 1973 which sort of ground the u.s economy to a halt because uh as we know this country runs on gas and that was not available for like six months and everyone lost their minds um gas but, lines uh it's, uh during those 25 years the real like gdp which is like the whole economy rose about 169 percent nice um, and employment increased by 75% and manufacturing jobs by 30% while per capita personal income almost doubled. So like everyone in the country basically had twice as much cash in their pocket at the end of those 25 years as they did at the beginning of those 25 years. Um, so it was, it was a really good time to be an American back then, or a specific kind of American, mind you. Um, a specific, like, you know, uh, white male American, although things did, on the whole, probably get a little bit better for everybody as these averages worked out. Um, but back then, manufacturing, like, was about a quarter of the economy rather than about, uh, what did I say before, 8%? Um, no, 12%. So it's, it was, like, double what it is now um, and employed about a third of the U.S. workforce. But... More relevantly to Pedal's readers, 95% of the clothing in 1960 um, was uh, manufactured in the U.S. So, like, this is that golden era of Levi's that, like, all the Japanese got all, like, hot and bothered about uh, from, like, the late 40s through the early 60s. Um, and those are the years that they all like to reproduce all so much. Um 47s, 54s, 66s. 66s, the 52s. 
Nobody really cares for the 78s. Those those were one of my personal favorites. But uh Yeah, I can't yeah. I can't vouch for those either, unfortunately. Um mm-hmm. that's I think you're I think you're on an island. Funny enough, the 78s were dyed with a specific indigo shade that had to be made because of the oil embargo, like out of a new material that wasn't petroleum based. So only it, pair of Levi's jeans. Uh, no, no, they, they, they found some other chemical. It, it was not natural. They, <laughs> so, so just like other, okay. Yeah. Just some other planet killing, uh, substance probably made by like Dow or DuPont. Um, but it wasn't petroleum based. Um, and in terms of spending though, back then in the 1960s, uh, the, uh, Household spent about 560 bucks annually on clothing, which adjusted for inflation is about $4,400. So more than double what we spend right now. And it was about 10% of their household income was on footwear and apparel. So they spent like, you know, on the order of like two and a half times as much. So they were shopping. They, they were shopping and things cost a little bit more comparatively. They're, they're, People in the 1960s were more in the read manner of purchasing things. But like my apartment is very, uh, you can read that when you, when you enter. Um, Where did these people put this stuff? I think is my question. Is this this the average size of a home bigger? I mean, I don't know if you know this again, you've, you've noted you're not a historian. But it kind of it, it was bigger because like this is when the suburbs first developed and people got their like walk in closets rather than living in tenements in the middle of the city. I guess. So, we yeah, you, tenement. you could have all your shit back then and you could like have a place to put all of it and not have to eat it too. have uh, yeah have tubs under your bed or sleep on a giant pile of clothing. This is the like, argument to move, right? This is like this is the this is the one I have. Otherwise. Um, Otherwise, I'm just roughing it out here in, in but, Anarchist, New York. It's allegedly yeah. on fire. Yeah. Hey, uh, we should all be so proud as to get such a distinction. The rest of us are really falling behind. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's terror. It's just it's sheer, it's, it's sheer madness here. Um, uh, uh, supply chains were smaller back then. Um and like a lot of these, so like things were made in USA because like a lot of the fabric was made in USA and then it was like cut and sewn and like just down the street in a lot of cases or in the same state at least. Um, so like you had a lot of brands that were actually owned their own factories that, you know, a, a department store like JCPenney would have their own line and they would like purchase the fabric from a like mill like cone and then they would send it to their own factory where it would be cut and sewn and then it would be shipped to all their different department stores. It was a much like smaller closed circle. Um, and you would like now, you know, uh, JC Penny RIP, but when like they would have a house line or really anything equivalent to it, they would just like make the design and put out the tech pack and do all the marketing for it and then send it out to the lowest possible bidder to make whatever shirt or pant or something that they wanted. So back then, like a lot more of a closed circle just because the opportunity didn't really exist to make it somewhere else. Like it wasn't feasible to like buy a half a container full of like underpants from Macau and have them shipped over here on a container ship. 
was the fabric so but like if there was if transportation was possible was the fabric in like you said Macau or like India would that have been cheaper at the time if there was a feasible way like was this i guess what i'm asking was this a problem laying in wait or was this a problem that developed due to a mo- like multiple factors um probably more multiple factors cuz just like back then the uh, like shipping was so much more expensive um, and it wasn't nearly as cheap to like bring something to the U S from India, um, as well as communication didn't work nearly as well. So you couldn't like email a tech pack to someone in Macau. You had to like fax it or like have a very expensive phone call to figure this shit out. And like, uh, overnight FedExing didn't really work. So there were just like a lot of interconnected factors that didn't exist to make something like that possible. Not to mention that like a lot of these places didn't have the manufacturing capabilities that they have now. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of things sort of coming together. Didn't have the manufacturing capabilities. Yeah, so. a lot of like different countries that would have had less expensive labor than in the U.S. All right, that makes sense. Um, but uh, get into that in a little bit. But, uh, but because like you couldn't really go anywhere else, labor back then had a lot more leverage. So like a lot of these manufacturing jobs were unionized and you could like have a family and buy a house on a single income, like without a college degree, which you can't even like basically break even, even with a college degree or because of a college degree as a like person in today's economy. Um, so like the, uh, back then, like the workers weren't like, the, the tail being wagged by the dog, which is sort of the way ownership works now is like, you just sort of have to, you know, beg and scrape for your ability to make whatever it is that you're making. Um, but back then, like nowhere else to go and you could maybe like ship it to a different city, but it like, wouldn't have been that much cheaper. So it's just like all of the, uh, facets of this were in play, like correctly for the U S to have a, good like consumer economy that actually had the money to buy things and had the reason to make things here, which sort of, you know, fueled off of each other. Um, but a reverse Ouroboros a little bit, just like both ends are vomiting and uh, shitting at the same time. So but, it's like a snake slithering normally, but it's social concept. welfare. What a concept. <laughs> uh, that's a tattoo that you don't see many people getting. Social welfare? Uh, uh, no, an Ouroboros shitting social welfare out of both ends. Oh, yeah. No, it's yeah. not It's not a popular design, although the people who get it really are into it. Mm-hmm. They show it. They show it off. They usually do like forearm. It's not a back situation. Mm-hmm. Right around the ear. <laughs> it's, uh, why was the social welfare snake going all crazy? Uh, it's... Uh, so sort of like the golden age, like as I'd like to call it, which is in contrast to the Gilded Age um, of like the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, when a lot of Americans were employed in manufacturing and we made a lot of things here. But it wasn't really great for, you know, 99.9% of people. Um, is this was the era of like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and J.P. Morgan and all the other robber barons that uh, squeezed human beings for basically everything that they were worth 
and you had, you know, kids working in, uh, like fabric mills and like losing eyes and like fingers and stuff because they were the, like small enough to run the shuttles through the looms. Um, my and mom had you had the triangle shirtwaist fire. Really? Yeah. They make it out. Two did. Three did. Ooh. Some did not. Uh, yes. Yeah, some. I'm not. I, I'm not. She's not entirely clear. Her story changes slightly. Although my grandmother had a good a good grasp on it. Um. But yeah, her. Her mom. Or her mom's mom was in it, I believe. For those not familiar with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, uh, you give a little bit of background. Uh, yeah, it was a uh, a factory that uh, it was not like waste, like like garbage. It's like the waste, like the the uh, what is it called? An animate. What people are worried about sizing for when they yeah. uh, buy so unsamphorized jeans. So uh, precisely why you sit in a bathtub sometimes um, with your clothes on when you're not sad. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so they made the, it was, a, it was a factory that had absolutely awful workplace standards. Um, and they used to lock the doors from the outside to make sure that uh they could treat their workers as poorly as possible. I, there's a longer way of saying that, but it's, it's not worth defending uh, factory owners in the early 1900s. It's just like, it's not. So uh, yeah, ultimately a fire started in a waste bin. Um, I'm not sure how the fire started. It was cigarette candle, something of the effect. It was a windowless room that locked from the outside mm-hmm. and everyone inside was basically trapped except for the lucky few who managed to, cause it clogged up with smoke real quick. There was no ventilation. So the, there was some who made it to a garbage chute and that was the only way anyone made it out. Wow. Yeah. It might've been basically an like a chute. Tinder box, like full of oily rags covered in like machine grease and like yeah. people working elbow to elbow in a wooden building. So like that was the, the, the bad times. Where it was gilded compared to golden is like gilded is just like gold on the outside, but you know, fake beneath that. Um, whereas the golden age of like 48 to 73, um, sort of like the, the criteria that I was able to suss out were like things were made in the United States and things were affordable to most consumers and workers were paid well enough to have decent lives. Um, whereas like the, the second two were not applicable to the Gilded Age of like things were still expensive back then and people were not paid well enough to have decent lives. Um, if you want to have a good look of what living back then was like, highly recommend the photographer Jacob Reese um, did a photo series called How the Other Half Lives of like people sleeping like 12 to a room in like New York City tenements. And uh, there were like twenty thousand people dying each year of tuberculosis in those times. Is the numbers are staggering? Yeah, and guy got a nice beach named after him. He did it's in a the Rockaways Park a Preserve. Yeah. Um, funny thing about that, though, we are at that same level of wealth inequality that uh, we had in the Gilded Age. Uh, we are back there again. You know, like a century and a half later. 
So we'll we'll see how that plays out. Um, but of the golden age, how did we get there? Like, why did why were things so good for that you know nice window of time that we all like to uh, um, idealize and uh, get misty about? Um, so there are a few factors that I think are are playing into this. Um, that. The biggest one is probably post-war American dominance. So, you know, like 1948, World War II ended in 1945. And funny thing about the United States is, like, we did not really get hit by that meteor the way the rest of the world did in Europe and Asia. And not only were they, like, hit by that war, but they had another one, at least in Europe, um, 20 years before that, the thing called World War One, that just decimated entire populations of like young working people um as well as like all their manufacturing centers and uh took a lot of time to rebuild from that but u.s like uh if you know your history we just sort of like snuck in at the end of world war one and in world war two you know we're a big part of the fight but nothing really happened on u.s soil outside of pearl harbor and in terms of like the workforce, maybe like the numbers are around 300,000 American troops were killed in action, which is compared to like 6 million in the Soviet Union, like three and a half million in Germany, 1 million in China, over a million in Japan. Um, don't want to like gloss over those numbers of like severe, like countless number of human lives that were lost in that conflict. Um, but like we had a natural advantage coming out of that. Um, and the U S was also one of the major manufacturing centers during the war of like, even before we got involved in the war, like there were a lot of programs making like planes and bombs and guns and all sorts of things like part of the lend lease program to arm, um, the allies before we even hopped in in 41. Um, and all of those like efficiencies and manufacturing centers and like people who were trained to make things were still there. Uh, and at the same time, like, since we're the only people that could really make stuff, we got a lot of the uh, ability to put things back together afterwards. As I mentioned before, like, the Marshall Plan um, was basically like a uh, blank check to rebuild Western Europe. And we spent, uh, it was $12 billion. That was in 1948. I talked about that uh amount of money that was set aside for um, uh, rebuilding Western Europe, which is about $130 billion in today's money. And uh, like we spent like over $2 billion, which is about $24 billion in today's dollars in Japan. Um, so it was just like no one else could make anything and we had the ability to make everything and we're making things for the entire world. Uh, and all of this sort of came on the heels of great New Deal investments in infrastructure that happened in the 30s. So you remember the Great Depression? Uh, Not personally, no. Some people do, maybe still. But uh, eat boxes of brownie mix for like 38 years. Yeah, and to a person. <laughs> these are the kind of ticks that we're going to have from like COVID times of one thousand percent. Yeah, I've already noticed myself reusing tinfoil like four and five times. 
yeah, I treat paper towels with reverence that's reserved for products far more important normally than like paper mm-hmm. towels. It's like, do you really need this? Do you? Uh, uh, in getting out of the Great Depression, like the government just basically hired everyone in the country that wasn't like put to work, that wasn't employed to make infrastructural improvements. So add things like new dams for electricity, new roads, new rail lines, phone lines, plumbing, public education, like all the things that you need as a whole in order to be a business to like make things. So like a statistic that I saw was um, how many percentage, like what percent of rural households do you think did not have electricity in 1935? Person, like what do I think? Yeah. 1935? Yeah, electricity. Model, like T's, Model T's been there for 23 years. I, I, I want to say oh. like 40, but it, it, it seems like it's going to be 70. 90. What is rural? I don't know. <laughs> a lot of these numbers, like the, like, uh, it's a funny thing about the new deal. <laughs> Is like they kept really good records of a lot of things, but they don't define these records at all. It's just all these like mimeographed like spreadsheets that you see stuff, and especially for the Rural Electrification Act of like ninety percent of households didn't have electricity, and about as many like didn't have running water or like plumbing. And it's kind of hard to like build a factory um, in a town that doesn't have electricity, or to sell blenders and stereos to people that you know can't plug them in anywhere. It can buy clothes, though. Can buy clothes. That is correct. Uh, it's, uh, one of the other things is, like, we actually had a population of people that could buy things. So the, like, state welfare that was created um, during the Great Depression and then really, really kicked into overdrive when uh, GIs came back from World War II created a new consumer middle class that could actually purchase all the stuff that we had the ability to make. Uh, we've got a quote here from the United Auto Workers president, Walter Ruther. Uh, it was in the New York Times Magazine in 1945, which was, the war has proven that production is not our problem. Our problem is consumption. We have found it impossible to sustain a mass purchasing power capable of providing a stable market for products of a 20th century technology. Well, I got news for you, Walter. We figured out that problem. We figured it out all the way to uh, global climate crisis. We, um, yo, you know, you solve one problem, create another. That's what they say. Yeah. Every yeah, time you, you open a window, you start a fire. You know, I think that's, I think that's the saying. But, uh, though so you had like 10 million soldiers returning from World War II that could now go to college, get technical training, like buy a house and like, have pretty nice lives and the government subsidized like almost every facet of it. So this is how you get like new suburbs, a new middle class, like, and new consumer goods. Cause like, like people are no longer living in austerity. Dave, but it's telling me that, that the nuclear family was subsidized by the government. I'm telling you the nuclear family was a government plot. Was it, are you telling me the nuclear family was kind of socialist? It's, it's it's very socialist read that uh, the way that we got out of upset some people the way that we won the Cold War was uh, through doing socialism better than the the USSR. Verifiably, uh, yes. 
But uh, at the same time, comments. Yeah, don't want to say that these benefits were entirely great for everybody. Like one of the biggest factors of um, generational wealth gaps in uh, racially was that most of these benefits were for white people um, coming back, as is usual in American history. That uh, the GI Bill was available to uh, returning black soldiers, but you know, when you're only allowed to go to like six colleges in the United States, it sort of puts a limit on what you're able to do with like that, that, that funds. Um, so important to remember here that like structural inequalities, even in these like boon times still exist and like persist in the way that those generational like wealth problems echo down to today. Uh, uh because of all this stuff, and like as I said before, jobs couldn't be outsourced. Like there was a lot bigger labor rights movement back then, and like uh, people were unionized, people had better wages to buy stuff, and people weren't living hand to mouth. So like they allowed people to spend more time like trying to improve their communities and make things better. Um, and also, what fueled all this was taxes, like the tax infrastructure back then would just like make anyone's head spin today. It, it makes Elizabeth Warren's look downright conservative. She looks like Goldwater, it, like compared to what 1960 was. Actually, I think Goldwater was like the, the super conservative uh, candidate for president in the 60s, advocated for a higher marginal tax rate than Elizabeth Warren. A lot of what fueled this in... Uh, and a lot of this development was taxes of like, you had to have infrastructure for all these um, like domestic businesses to be able to operate. And the top marginal tax rate in 1960 was 91%, which is just like mind boggling today is the top marginal tax rate is 37% now. And that was for uh, people that earned more than $150,000, um, which is like around a, a one and a half million today you had to pay like 91 cents on every dollar that you earned more than 150,000. So like your 150,000th and first dollar, like 91 cents of that was taken by the government. Um, which only applied to like maybe one in 50,000 households in the U S at that point. So it was a very small number of people, um, that were funding a lot of the things that helped everybody. So like, uh, this made the interstate highways like virtually free public universities and a whole lot of coups in South America and the military industrial complex. Um, but like, except for that last one, last one, these are things that, you know, made America competitive on the global stage. Um, and just to like emphasize this of like, it was the golden age because people could actually live. And like when you had manufacturing in the United States, including things of like making shoes and jeans and jackets and hats, like people could actually buy those same things that were produced here. Cause like I've been to a lot of factories in the States, like I'm sure you've seen a few too, that like the people working there cannot afford the things that they're making. Like they're making a luxury product, but not being paid a wage that would allow them to actually consume it. Whereas at this point it was like the, it was more of a closed system. So like if you were working on the line and like sewing a like 
uh, JC Penney's like ranch craft denim jacket, you would have the, it, it was not beyond your ability to buy that thing. Um, which made for just like a more equitable and, uh, livable economy for more people as, uh, yeah, it was like the American dream was more than it had ever been at any point in American history, like in that period. Cause like without a college degree, you get a 40 hour week job and like be safe, work there for like 30 years and like have a spouse, kids and a house and you could all go to Disneyland. Get your watch oh. every 10 years. Yeah. Get your watch every 10 years. Now the, you got to wait like 40 years to get your watch. Exactly. You know, which like a, if you, if you even get a watch, I don't know, even though like it, it's a, it's a different, different time. Side note, like one of my biggest watch grails is the, uh, Domino's pizza Rolex that, <laughs> uh, they had a like promotional Rolex that they gave out to like people that had been with the company for so long. And it is a straight up like Rolex, uh, air King, that has the Domino's logo on the face of the watch. That that's one incredible and two probably the most perfect like melding of your two interests. I would yeah. I would love one of those so much. Like uh, too bad they couldn't put like pizza grease on the face and make it look like a pizza, but you know I'll I'll take it. Officially it licensed Rolex has a well priced Domino's pro or, or a loyalty Air King. Kicking yeah. around, you have a you have a willing buyer. Can be one of my three things that I buy this year. Man, I'm jealous. Uh, so like that's sort of my take on like what made and like what it was like uh, during this supposed like good times um, of and like the golden era of American vintage and like American dream and just American prosperity in general. As most people know, as we talked about before, like the uh, that era is very, very much over and sort of stopped in 1973, which, as I mentioned, the uh, OPEC oil embargo, there was the uh, war in Israel and the Arab oil cartel. I don't want to get into all the details on this, but like the uh, Arab oil cartel, like cut production off to any country that was perceived to support Israel is again, it was just some shit in the Middle East that started it all off. Uh, as per usual, and uh, oil like quadrupled in price, and just like things that were viable to be done in this country uh, back then, no longer became viable. So like a lot of people lost their jobs, like the value of the dollar went way down, and we had stagflation. Like as uh, Jimmy Carter said, like a miasma has descended upon this great nation, and uh, everyone hated him for it. Um, because of his use of the word miasma in retrospect. Yeah. It's a great word. And he was, you know, probably the, uh, the, the best person to ever be president. Wasn't the best president, but probably the best person still building houses for habitat. Son smoked weed with Willie Nelson on the roof of the white house. Uh, the, that's, that's the golden age. Exactly. I mean, it's a little after it, but we can push it out just to include it. We're defining um, these. We make the rules. These are our rules. That was in the golden age. As we were exiting this golden age, like a lot of other countries were catching up and a lot of other countries that like didn't have to, uh, 
spend so much on oil and like you ever see those like photos from the 70s of people in their giant boat cars like lined up for a quarter mile to pump gas like in countries where you didn't have to do that it suddenly became a lot cheaper to manufacture you know like japan china mexico like they had caught up from world war ii and they had the same like manufacturing capabilities like they could make uh they could weave denim they could sew jeans um, but the labor there was a lot cheaper. Um, so a lot of the leverage that workers had, um, during the golden age began to evaporate because, you know, companies could just send it elsewhere. Uh, and in the early eighties, um, there was a, uh, a law that like, it wasn't illegal anymore for companies to buy up their own stock. So like people started caring a lot more about quarterly earnings in these mega corporations rather than long-term investment in infrastructure to make like steadily in, uh, profitable companies. It was just about turning and burning. Um, and a lot of the things to be burned were American factories and like long-standing employees that maybe had pensions and dental plans and like all the stuff that made their lives good and made it a good job was really expensive and they wanted to get rid of that. Um, as a consequence of that, like taxes were lowered um, significantly on the wealthy, and like is like we're at thirty seven percent marginal uh, income tax now, which is like two thirds down from that higher level. Like uh, and roads, bridges, like infrastructure, like telecom, all that stuff started crumbling, and other people caught up. Is like. Um, we don't have the uh, the systems in place to be able to really manufacture here anymore um, and remain competitive with the manufacturing capabilities in a lot of other countries. Um, and all this sort of swirled together uh, around a death blow, uh, at least for clothing manufacturing, with NAFTA, which... Uh, if you're in this like niche, you've probably heard like people grousing about NAFTA of like sort of the like good old boy like denim manufacturer type folks that just want to uh, complain about the government. But NAFTA was like really really bad for a lot of uh, labor rights in the U.S. So NAFTA was the stands for the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, which like the three countries in North America, Mexico, U.S., and Canada, like, you used to have to, like, if you imported something, like, um, as you know, if you proxy too much stuff from Japan, you have to pay a fee on it when it gets, like, sent over the border um, and before it gets delivered to you. That's how you know and when to stop. It's how you know when to stop. It's just, like, when you hit that like, limit. Oh, I got to, yeah. It's like the opposite of free shipping. Of like spend so much to get free shipping, it's spend so much to like have the uh, border patrol hold your package and then make you spend two hundred dollars for weeks. Yeah, do you, not you pass only, go. You only do it at least like you only do it three times. Yeah, the fourth you're like I'm not doing this again. But like before NAFTA, that was the same thing for like anything crossing the border between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Whether it was, you know. Uh, a denim jacket or it was like computer parts or it was corn. Um, but in 1994, when NAFTA went into effect, it was just like borders are open. Like you can trade whatever you want and there's no tariff. You can just move things across the border. 
with no fees in place. Um, but as with everything, this had some consequences as like labor in Mexico was much cheaper than the U S and, uh, as a certain someone says, like, uh, capital and money can cross borders, but labor cannot. So almost any manufacturing that could be exported, um, in the late nineties, early two thousands was, this is when you start to see like Levi's, um, lucky Lee, like all the big workwear brands start closing down their own factories um, and moving out of where they were previously in the U.S. And uh, just want to remind you that um, statistic I mentioned earlier that you know, 150,000 garment manufacturing jobs today versus a million in 1990. Oh, just totally decimated. And uh, there are other like sort of like silly but tragic things that happened too of like Mexican corn farmers really, really got screwed because like corn in the United States is subsidized by the government to in ridiculous degree. Um, and uh, Mexican farmers couldn't compete on like the open market with that. And like 900,000 Mexican farmers lost their jobs. But story for another podcast about the corn version of heddles. But uh just sort we're, of a, a track about the outsized importance of the Iowa caucus. <laughs> Truly. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just like NAFTA had a lot of, um, problems, not the least of which was, uh, American so, manufacturing leaving. So when does China come in? I feel like that's, oh. I feel like, like folks from when I, so I, when I was at union made, um, on the floor, poorly reviewed by many customers. Um, people used to freak out about made in China, especially in sort of, we'll say, you know, in, in, in the mix of everything else we had going on. Um, in my experience, the stuff that was made in China was really well made that we carried. So I never had any, any issues with it, but when did China become sort of the, the, uh, I guess the United States of the seventies of the two thousands, you follow that? I yeah. Don't know if it worked. Yeah. Like, when did we pass the baton off to uh, another country that had like similar, we, like, burgeoning or development? Like, or, like, where did the baton we dropped get picked up? <laughs> yeah. Um, that was, like, really in the late 90s, like, early 2000s, as um, China joined the, the World Trade Organization in 2001, um, which the World Trade Organization was, like, somewhat similar to NAFTA of just like all these different countries having agreements for where they could send stuff and how much it would cost. Um, and like in textiles, like this was a big deal in 2005 specifically. Like I went into this in my article from a couple of years ago about the end of cone uh, mills, white Oak. Um, and like there were um, fabric import quotas before 2005 of like, you know, the U.S. could set a limit of like, I only want like 2 million yards of canvas from China. After that, I'm not taking any more canvas. Or I only want like, you know, uh, 5 million blouses from India. So and protect, like no more blouses. protected a market in some sense. Yeah, that yeah. There were big point, like... If you wanted to produce, you had to make it here. Or there somewhere were, else. Yeah, protectionist trade policies of just like you could turn the nozzle on and off of trade imports as a as a country controlling your own economy seems practical but, 
Yeah, in like 2005, though, after that, like it didn't really exist anymore. Um, and you could trade as much as you wanted. So uh, rather than like run out those quotas, like all the companies that were making stuff were just looking for like, okay, where can I get the fabric the cheapest? Where can I get the labor the cheapest? And which ones are closest together so I can like spend as little as possible on shipping? As you know, all these companies like aren't really doing it for the love of the game. They're doing it for like, where can they turn a buck the quickest? And where can they turn the buck the quickest like in the next three months? Um, China had like developed like wild in the like basically the seventies to the two thousands after China opened up post, um, you know, like Nixon, uh, visiting it in the early seventies. Um, but yeah, that's probably a question for another pod of like, why did, um, shock versus Nixon. Yeah, you know, we we'd all love to see it. Uh, it's uh I don't know if I can dig that deep. Like literally like 6 feet down with a shovel. <laughs> but I'll try. Um but yeah, like the all of that sort of added up to like weakening labor as now like American workers had to compete with like Mexican, Chinese and like other cheaper labor markets for the same work. And um there's this just a statistic I saw that uh, the equivalent Bangladeshi garment worker makes 38 times less than the American garment worker, which is like a really staggering number because it's like hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. It was like, say an American worker makes like $80 a day. That means the equivalent Bangladeshi like sewer makes $2. And like that's how you get those twenty five dollar a pop garments um, that we're buying seventy of a year, which which seems uh, both bad and excessive. Um, yeah, I don't buy seven. I don't think I buy seventy. I that seems like too many. I don't think I buy seventy a year. Person, it's a lot. I mean, I like more than eighteen hundred though. That is that is not up for debate. That's an that's a number. Um. You know, I, yeah, 70 is, it's just a lot. You can't like anything if you're buying that much stuff, right? No, it, it's like, uh, it's like buying tissue paper or something. It's just like you blow your nose in it and you, you throw it away. I, I cannot imagine just like where all this stuff is going. It's like, yeah, it's like a bodega sandwich. Like you, I never remember a specific one. Like I know exactly mm-hmm. the sandwich I like and I order it, but it's not like, yo, that one last Tuesday was good. It's no, it's the same sandwich. I mean, like, I, I don't know when you, when you start going down. Yeah. It's too many items. You can't remember anything in five years. That's 350 items. Yeah. I, it is mind boggling to me. I can do that. The one that buys years. That is, uh, as we've said, buys three things a year. Uh, how many we at this year? Uh, we got two so far, but they're both bandanas. So I don't know if they count. You count those. No, I'd count those as like one together. I got a couple of like capital uh, rat bandanas. Okay. So they at so the, that's, the beginning. That's a little yeah. That's those aren't cheap. No, if you're going like 40 with like bucks a pop. Yeah. Okay. Together they're one. I give you that. I I did buy some new running shoes, but I feel like that doesn't count because like it's utility. It's, it's utility. It's, it's utility. not close. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I, I use the utility excuse constantly. I've used the mm-hmm. utility excuse for Birkenstocks. So this is a tool. Yeah, it's a tool for relaxation. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, like, I don't know. The, the way I'd sort of put an end to this story is that, like, Levi shut the Valencia Street factory down in SF, what used to make all the 501s in 2005. And basically every American, like, clothing brand is just that. It's just a brand that outsources everything that they possibly can to the lowest bidder somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world. So, yeah, I feel like it, it, American made in America brands at this point feel like a means to a story, not necessarily a means to an end. Gitman vintage, uh, shut down their factory, uh, their union factory and are moving to Tennessee. I believe David, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, and, part of like the major, the, they've got like an umbrella company that owns it. That also has like, uh, that make shirts for another sub brand that's not as well known in Tennessee. And, and that's where everyone's being folded into if they decide to move. And you know, it, it always is. It's a top of line item for folks that still pull it off. Um, the ones who do it at scale are riddled with scandal. Um, almost to a, to a, I, I'd say to a brand, like whether it's something that Dob Charney's created in his terrible kitchen or, or just sort of any of the other LA made in LA brands that have gone through their own, their own variations of, of uh, poor factory standards in a lot of these situations, like and going back to Gitman, I think it, it just seems like it's a, it's only a matter of time before they end up sending it overseas. If they're going to a non-union factory in Tennessee to begin mm-hmm. with, they're losing the best of the manufacturing that they were doing. They're presumably not going to change the price structure. That's pretty ingrained in the customer. Um, yeah. And if that's already ingrained in the customer, then then the story is just made in the USA. But you know they could feasibly move that to Portugal, or they can move it, they can move it elsewhere probably, and still pick it up. It seems like the luster is gone if it's not at their factory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and an important thing to mention is that like uh, American manufacturing capabilities, at least for clothing, have sort of been frozen since the mid '90s. As like when everyone was leaving, like very few places were upgrading their shops so it's the same like sewing machines and the same like click presses and the the same everything and in a lot of these uh workshops so to do the same amount of work in comparison to like someplace like china that's much more technologically advanced and the equipment that they have would take you know twice the man hours perhaps twice the like much more expensive man hours to get it done um, just because the economy of scale isn't here anymore. And that's, that is old. Like I think about, look, like, I look at Bill Clinton now and that was, <laughs> and he's like, a, he's like a cicada skin now, like just a shed, <laughs> a shed exoskeleton. But those were installed when he was there, huh? That's like sort of when we kick out. Yeah. That is that long ago. It could vote in this election, these machines. Um, there's still some smaller places that have upgraded and have like, I've seen some like laser guided, like uh, cutting machines that are really fancy in like some American spots. But yeah, for the most part, it's like, we're all um, like used future aesthetic looks like, you know, the millennium Falcon has been like rotting for 80 years and people are uh, sewing uh, chore coats on them. So is, is there, 
So like, I guess, I guess I'll ask the folks or for, you know, be the proxy on this one for people out there who are like, yeah, but the old machines work great. Right. Like if you like on a smaller level, like a non-scaled level, um, what kind of market is that at this point? Right. Like, like I, we used to stock Raleigh denim. They made a great pair of jeans. Not for me. Uh, I have a stance mm-hmm. on hard pants, but, um, great pair of jeans. I, I like those jeans. They were great to write about. They're easy to sell. Um, rarely had complaints. And I know they did those things on like an old union standard and probably rock jukies and stuff like that. And I know there's quite a few other brands that I know are on small productions, old machines. Um, is that the only future though that American manufacturing has is these sort of boutique or, or operations for the sake of operations, but not necessarily for the sake of scale or for, for reclaiming dominance or I guess making American products cheaper ultimately. Cause none of the things um, I mentioned are cheap. Yeah. It's like, I feel like the like crafted and made in USA, um, AKA Levi's made and crafted, but uh, <laughs> that stuff like is sort of going to be the vestigial bit of made in USA. That's going to stick around like working on those antiques. Um, made in USA, I think might come back like in a, at scale, but when it does, it's not going to look like that. Like we've already sort of seen some of this happening with Levi's um, with their finishing processes for a lot of their jeans of, um, you know, like a lot of what they sell is not raw denim. Um, it is, you know, chewed up and sanded and spit out in whatever trendy uh, wash is in that season. Yeah. And Blasting they're with bringing, a welding machine. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're bringing that back to the United States, but it's not being done by human hands anymore. It's all being done by lasers. And like uh, Ryan and I, like we went to a factory in Karachi and we saw like, hundreds and hundreds of people like, like tooling up jeans with like angle grinders and sandpaper. And like, it's really, really labor intensive. Like they let me do it and they laughed at me. But, uh, yeah, like when it comes back to the States, that's going to be done by like, instead of, you know, 200 people in a factory, it's going to be like a half dozen factory techs and like 30 robots. So like American efficiency has gotten way better and, and uh, manufacturing production, but like wages have remained stagnant. So like the jobs aren't coming back, even if the manufacturing does is, is sort of the, the prediction I have for this. What the, are the chances? Like, are we looking at like a, like a one in a million dumb and dumber chances on recreating the golden age, but now in more equitable times, hopefully it would be for more people, right? Like that would be, that would be the big upshot is, is that ostensibly folks wouldn't be left out as, in as large numbers, obviously we have miles, yeah. of, miles of train to cover, but th- even if it does come back at capacity production wise, you don't think the, the jobs will be there. No, no, not at all. This is just like, we're always going to do what's cheaper. And like, that's the calculus that, um, these companies are making right now is like, is buying robots and like land to put them on in the United States cheaper than labor plus shipping from somewhere else in the world. And like when the robots get cheaper than the, uh, foreign labor, that's when it's going to come back. That's literally the con the, the plot of 
the remake of Willy Wonka with Johnny Depp. Yeah. It's just all about automation, except it's a nice story because uh, Charlie's dad gets a job fixing the robots. Mm-hmm. Tim Burton but- is mad pro pro automation, it turns out. Man, like I kind of am too, but it's just like in the face of our current economic system, it's really scary because like, yeah, if we had like, if we had enough robots to do all the work, then like, that's great because like, honestly, like sewing barrel cuffs onto a shirt, like eight hours a day, five days a week, maybe that you're someone that finds that satisfying work, but like, I don't really think that's most people yeah it's hard work it's sort of mind-numbing it's monotonous um and if we can rescue people from that uh without them like starving i think that's a good thing but like the way that our system of ownership is set up right now it's just the people that own the robots are going to be able to buy you know another yacht and like two other penthouses that uh as investment properties and the people that worked in that factory are going to be out on their ass um, so I don't know. It's just a matter of distribution. And I, I think in order to correct for this, we're going to need a program that reinvests in infrastructure on the scale that we did in, uh, the new deal and in world war two. Um, there is one called the green new deal, um, that will make the United States like a manufacturing leader again. Um, and in a way that improves most people's lives to like counteract this other looming existential crisis that, you know, could potentially kill more people than World War II in, uh, uh, in terms of climate change. I have a very serious question. In another life, I, uh, I work on political messaging on occasion. Um, is there a way to, f- to frame the Green New Deal as the rise of of made in the USA denim. Can can we get can we get all of all of our our denim our denim people out here and all the made in the USA heads on board with the green new deal based strictly on is is their manufacturing worked in? I haven't looked deeply into the text and by the way there's not a ton of text right now. But are are we talking clothing manufacturing? Is that something you could see being invested in in in, in an infrastructure uh program that large and that expensive oh yeah absolutely because I, I i see that as a thing because like shipping um is one of the biggest polluters it's yeah, like the important. big yeah shipping is i think the biggest polluter and then like same with energy and then like fashion is the next one down but like a lot of the pollution from fashion is shipping things because like if you look at the global supply chains for a lot of these bigger brands like the cotton is grown in the united states and then it is shipped to like India to be milled. And then it is like sent to Turkey to be woven and then Bangladesh to be cut and sewn and then back to the U S to be sold. And the carbon yeah. footprint of manufacturing on a global scale is horrifying. Um, whereas if you buy like the pair of Raleigh jeans, like you were talking about the, uh, like that cotton is grown in North Carolina. It's woven in, or was woven in North Carolina. And then it's cut and sewn in North Carolina. Um, the carbon so even though it doesn't have to, is small is what you're saying on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Is it doesn't have to, you know, put all the stamps in its passport in order to get made. I think it's time to unite the John's enthusiasts and the climate change advocates and activists 
and send them on their mission. They have this is it, like, it sounds like an enemy situation, but I think it's an enemy of my enemy situation. Oh, we need case, those sunrise right? zoomers to start wearing raw jeans. I've I've been banging that drum for a while. People aren't really listening, but <laughs> yeah, I think like the the way that I think we're we... gonna start working on this Green New Deal idea. Heddle's readers are not they're they're like no, please don't do this read. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's like a it's impossible to ignore the uh, environmental benefits of consuming and wearing clothes in the way that like a lot of the things on Heddle's promote. Of like, don't buy a lot, like buy like locally when you can and like repair the hell out of it and don't wash it very much. Is there great advice? Do you think they'll, if we came back at capacity, like let's just say the one in a million hits, our lotto, our lotto comes true. Do you think there'll be space at that point or, or a desire from the manufacturers to create that mid price point that wouldn't, that wouldn't would discourage people from buying 70 pieces a year, but actually would, would sort of uh, at least imply value quality, things like that. Right. Like, like talking about that $115 tier, like some of the things we get to see from maybe Indonesian brands or things like that, who do make a really good product just at a slightly lower point. Yeah. Like this is, I guess the argument for wealth redistribution. Cause like if people had more pocket money to be able to buy the nicer things they wouldn't necessarily like be forced to buy the exploitative things that are cheaper you know the 25 dollars an item but it's going to take like a huge cultural shift for people to not think that 25 dollars uh, for a pair of jeans is the 25 dollars is the price the jeans should cost it's um lot. it's a lot of cultural shifts we need huh yeah which I don't know, like maybe something like the last six months like, might be enough to like shake some shit up and get people to reevaluate their methods of consumption. Um, but I don't know. It, it, it's an addiction that um, you don't say. It, and, and it's also a like matter of national security too, to like have some manufacturing capability here um, is like, you know, in, April and May, we didn't have the ability to make face masks and ventilators fast enough. No, people were screaming Ford and GM, not like just the names. They had no plan. They were just like Ford, GM, Google. Yeah, just do it. Save us. We we make cars. Yeah, and they they started, but it's just like we can't rely on our corporate overlords to save us um, unless it's financially like viable for them to do it. Which is why, you know, the like uh, Defense Production Act like had to be put in place. I don't know if it ever was. I mean, it should have been on like March fifteenth, but or January fifteenth. I think I think it was threatened and lorded over in four press conferences and ultimately abandoned. Um, yeah. But I don't think I have any other questions for you on this. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, think I, I think I understand at this point why we do not have high quality, high volume made in the USA. We have high quality, but just not the volume. Yeah, it's, in the it's USA just, clothing. Yeah, it's the the Roy and Raleigh's of the world or of the country, and not like it, you won't see a collection um, from H and M or like the Gap 
from the United States anytime soon. Or at, if you do, it won't be, you know, priced appropriately. And like when you're approaching clothing really like a commodity of just like, okay, I've got two identical pairs of jeans. One is made in Bangladesh and it's $30 and one is made in the U S and it's 150. And like, you can't really see much discernible difference between the two. Like very few people are going to buy the 150 pair unless you're reading this site. It's a, it's a big ask. Um, it really, you know, it is, it's a big ask of folks to understand sort of the difference. You know, I, I've been told a million times that looks like the thing I have and, um, it's not, but I don't say that because I want to be invited back places. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a tough it's a tough issue. Vote for infrastructure, vote for education, like vote for raising taxes on on rich people is like that's the only way that we're going to potentially infrastructure our way out of this of just by like having the means to make things again cuz like America really isn't set up to make things, especially clothing at the moment. And um if anything, you've got to like maybe you could scare people into saying it's a matter of national security. Um, but I don't know. I think that only fuels the military industrial complex even further than it is right now. Um, so I'm not sure unless you're like Matty Iglesias and promoting 1 billion Americans, uh, and we have to make, uh, underwear for all of them, uh, how to really, uh, make that argument any better, except that just like, if we all have these like systemic changes going in the right direction, like life Quality of life will improve significantly for the majority of uh, the American working class.